You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, November 2nd. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Ola Tortilla, offering homemade organic tortillas and tamales utilizing locally sourced ingredients, serving Taco Tuesdays to go with vegetarian grasshopper or carnitas tacos, plus imported food products from Oaxaca, Mexico. Next to Food and Juice, Nevada City, olatortilla.com. Natural Selection, a mom-and-pop grocery store in downtown Grass Valley, featuring organic produce, local goods, freshly prepared food, also beer and wine. Online shopping with curbside pickup available, naturalselectiongrocery.com. And Mountain Recreation, locally owned since 2000, retailing seasonal recreation gear, including winter outerwear, skis, snowboards, also gear for seasonal or day rentals. Mountain Recreation open daily, East Main Street, Grass Valley, mtnrec.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery speaks with Matt Ozaposki and reports on the local story of PG&E showing up today to cut the remaining trees on West Broad Street. We have this week's water news with hydrogeologist Steve Baker. We bring you today's national native news. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Disability Wrap, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Nearly 100 million Americans have already voted in this year's election, but tens of millions more are expected to show up in person tomorrow. An army of lawyers and monitors will be there with them watching for potential problems. Here's NPR's Pam Fessler. The Trump campaign says it's recruited 50,000 people to watch the polls on Election Day. Democrats will have poll watchers, too, and voter advocacy groups will also be out in force. One coalition called Election Protection has lined up 42,000 volunteers to help voters with problems they encounter at the polls. Kristen Clark of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law heads the group. She says some early voters have reported feeling intimidated by caravans of Trump supporters and self-styled militias. I am encouraged, though, that we are not seeing these issues on a widespread basis. They have been sporadic and spotty. She says her group will go to court if necessary to make sure no one is stopped from voting. Pam Fessler, NPR News. President Donald Trump is attacking a court decision in Pennsylvania that allows elections officials to count mailed ballots that are received up to three days after tomorrow's election. Trump falsely blaming the U.S. Supreme Court when it is actually Pennsylvania's top court that ordered the extension to November 6, even if the ballot does not have a clear postmark. The U.S. Supreme Court did refuse to block Pennsylvania's decision, Trump addressing a crowd in Pennsylvania called the situation, quote, very dangerous, and I mean dangerous, physically dangerous. President Trump is facing backlash from his Democratic rival, Joe Biden, for suggesting he may fire the nation's top infectious disease expert after the election. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports Trump stepped up verbal attacks against Dr. Anthony Fauci come amid a record number of new coronavirus cases across the U.S. 
In a tweet, former Vice President Joe Biden says the nation needs a president who listens to experts like Dr. Fauci. The post on social media comes a day after President Trump told supporters in Florida that he may fire Fauci after the election. Trump has repeatedly clashed with Fauci over the administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic, including the use of face masks. In recent days, Fauci has warned that the U.S. is in a poor position heading into the winter months with cases spiking across the nation. Trump has repeatedly made false claims that the pandemic is rounding the turn. The U.S. on Friday reported nearly 100,000 new infections, a single-day record high. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Investors on Wall Street have lots on their plate this week. Put aside tomorrow's election, there are also a host of major economic indicators. The Federal Reserve meets in Washington, where policymakers will decide what action, if any, to take on interest rates. The jobs numbers for October will be released Friday. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 423 points. This is NPR. Kansas has set another record for its largest number of reported coronavirus cases over seven days. Based on state health department data, Kansas had an average of 1,507 new confirmed and probable cases a day for the seven days ending Monday. That's nearly 18 percent higher than the previous seven-day case total. State health department officials added more than 4,000 cases to the state's count and reported an initial 17 COVID-19-related deaths since Friday. New Jersey law enforcement officials are looking into a caravan of Trump supporters that shut down highway traffic over the weekend. In Paris Hunzi Luang reports, state officials are urging any demonstrators to find less dangerous ways to express themselves ahead of the last day of voting. A caravan of cars and trucks waving flags supporting President Trump brought traffic on the Garden State Parkway to a standstill Sunday. The head of the New Jersey State Police, Colonel Patrick Callahan, called the situation, quote, incredibly irresponsible and dangerous. There's plenty of ways for people to make their voices heard, but when they endanger the lives uh, of those out there uh, traveling our highways and byways, uh, there really is no excuse for it. Callahan says state law enforcement officials are studying videos of the caravan and may issue summonses to some drivers. Similar caravans of Trump supporters have recently clogged traffic in other states, including Texas and Arizona. Anzi Luong, NPR News. Builders were busier in September. The latest figures from the Commerce Department show construction spending up three-tenths of a percent. September's rise follows an even bigger revised 1.3 percent bump up in August. Spending on residential construction was responsible for much of the rise. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight will be mostly clear with a low around 52. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 76 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 48. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 47. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 79 and a low around 48 with mostly clear skies. In Truckee tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 31. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 67 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 29. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 54. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 79 and a low around 53 with mostly clear skies. Matt, uh, boy, a lot of things happened today. I was out there 
this morning. Tried my best to get through and find you, but things were pretty well blocked off. But it looks like the PG&E crew landed with uh, pretty much everything that they needed to finish off the job today, including taking uh, your person out of the tree. Uh, and, and what ended up happening? Um, well, you might hear chainsaws in the background. Uh, PG&E is cutting trees as we speak at multiple locations around the West Broad Street and Orchard Street area. Um, including on private properties on Orchard Street that have contested the cuts and also on parts of the Pioneer Cemetery. Uh, they were not successful in removing our tree sitter. Um, Brandon is still up in his tree. Um, however, they are right now removing a tree directly adjacent to his tree, which I personally find to be extremely reckless, as did their crane driver who told us they definitely would not be doing that because it would be crazy to do so and then a couple hours later there they are doing exactly that but uh for whatever reason they decided that it was either too dangerous or too illegal to try to physically extract him from his platform 85 feet up in the pine tree that he has been occupying so that tree appears to be safe until he comes down. Um, every other tree on PG&E's list is either cut already or soon to be cut. Um, they're moving very aggressively through town at the moment. So it looks like they kind of want to get this thing done so they can um, move on. That seems to be the situation, yes. But Brandon is still up in the tree, and he seemingly intends to stay there for a while. Uh, tell us what you know about that. Yeah, he's uh, remaining in the tree for now and indefinitely until he chooses to come down. Uh, again, we're an unassociated organization. He's doing what he's doing of his own free will, and we'll stop doing what he's doing when it no longer feels right to him. But he has enough supplies to last him for a while, and he doesn't have any plans to come down anytime soon. Is there going to be any organized effort to support him in the meantime? We are certainly supporting him in every way that we can, yes. So, uh, Matt, uh, this is not exactly a victory for today, um, but it's seemingly— I wouldn't say it's a victory. I mean, watching, watching all these trees come down is— is very hard, and you know many of them are trees that were on Zeno Acton's list of trees that he felt could be safely retained, and trees that we've been advocating for for these past months. And so, it's I'm very proud of Brandon, and I'm very happy that that tree is safe for now. But also sad to see that so much of the rest of what PG&E is doing to our community is unfortunately moving forward. And it is likely to be emulated in other communities. Absolutely. Every, every community in PG&E's service area, we just happen to be very near the top of their list. But, you know, it's important for your listeners, wherever they are, to understand that this is a program that they're going to implement in every community, every neighborhood across the state. Um, the estimates are well into the millions, probably in the tens of millions of trees removed. And given the haphazard nature of their assessments in Nevada City, I think it's safe to assume that millions of the trees that they're going to be taking down would be disputed by any objective master arborist. Well, Matt, uh, that's about it for today. I am going to play the audio from him up in the tree, and 
Uh, it's a little confusing, but this is the live audio as he was approached by people, that, by the PG&E people that keep, were craned up to at 85 feet up and um, to talk to him while he's in the tree. So uh, hope it makes sense. Uh, thank you so much and look forward to talking to you as, uh, more about this as we need to. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate you and uh, KVMI for following this day. You bet. I, I'm not. I'm not willing to put you guys at risk of paying a fifty thousand dollars fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> because yeah, they can't reach me from the top safely without a chainsaw limbing the top. There's no way. How close can you even? How much closer can you even get? Yeah, but I would probably stand in your way if you did that, and you wouldn't want that liability. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. That's fine by me. That's actually what I was hoping for. You know, I just got my house all situated yesterday. I was actually feeling really sad if I had to leave it already, you know? It's really cozy right there. You have no idea. You ever slept 85 feet up off the ground? Man, it's, there's, there's something... But you're the crane operator? This is your first time up on the crane? Oh, well, hey, congratulations. <laughs> What'd you call it, the man basket? <laughs> the man basket? I got it. No, never mind. <laughs> yeah, dude, you're, you're doing your job. It is, it's the, the rule makers that I have issue with, you know? We just have one simple request that this tree be deemed not a hazard because to everyone who sees it, to the expert arborist who was never consulted in the first place, this tree is not a risk to those power lines. And all we ask is a compromise. So, oh, they know. Yeah. Well, uh, carry on. Well, those were two arborists in the crane. They are not forcibly removing me um, with the crane, police officer and all. They probably realized that was a really, really bad idea. What's the summation here? Is that they're going to back off for a while? Um, yeah, it's it's confirmed that they are just going to starve me out, and they are going to start doing tree work on three of the other trees marked here in the graveyard. Okay. Yeah. Okay, then. Uh, then that's, then that's, oh. it. that's it for right now. They've gone down, huh? They came up with two crane. Well, the crane operator and one tree tree cutter. And they basically said, hey, we're going to start work on the other ones. The police officers are not coming up here. And they they confirmed that they are just going to starve me out. But to me, that's a success. That means I get seven more days with Shirley. Yeah, sounds good. Oh, we love you, Tyson. Oh. Love you, brother. Thank you so much, Shirley. Thank, Thank you. you. And we'll get you some more water and almond yeah, butter and get green onions during the daytime. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's, that's a really big success. Um, yeah, the cops realized that it was a pretty horrible idea to do what they were threatening to do. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. 
Let's talk about some challenges that we are uh, struggling with today. I would say the California Delta is a good overall example. That's our part of our commitment to maintain healthy ecosystems, but it has gone through many years of being kind of difficult. Uh, what are the scientists saying? Well, the scientists, they're saying that that the already complex influences that are occurring in the Delta, they're getting compounded by climate change. I mean, you just look at what's going on down in the Delta now. We, we have had for, for many, many years a huge water conveyance system demand on that Delta. There's invasive aquatic species that are having to be dealt with. There's more frequent toxic algae blooms. And, of course, warming air temperatures means warming water temperatures. Sea level rise is happening, and then we have the levee integrity, always in question. So there's a lot of things going on there. And Jeff Mount, he's a senior fellow with the Public Policy Institute of California, he says that things are changing so rapidly that the observation, hypothesis, testing theory that one goes through in studying something is uh, is more difficult to do because the changes are happening so much faster than the studies can be completed. So that you know the delta, it's going through a lot of climate changes, droughts and heat waves and forest fires and floods, and we've had many of those things this year, and they're more frequent and they're more intense. So the challenge is to uh, is kind of centered on letting go of the old world's way of thinking and come up with new understandings, new responses. Uh, that way we'll have an ecosystem uh, that we can actually help adapt with and adapt to, and uh, we become more agile. Our responses become better. So it's, it's about responses and not reaction, you know, not being reactive. And I think many of our listeners have heard of this uh, concept for many other things. Well, Steve, you talk about merging the old with the new, uh, but that must be pretty difficult with California's historic, I mean, very, very old groundwater laws. Oh, I mean, that's a really good point because the the uh, historic groundwater laws are uh, were really challenged uh, to a degree when when the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2016 was signed by Governor Governor Jerry Brown. You know, the focus of this newer groundwater legislation was to protect against groundwater depletions. You know, we're, we're dewatering the Central Valley aquifers. We're dewatering some of the other areas in Paso Robles and, and many other parts of, of our state. And so we need to allow those to come back into balance and start filling if, if, we, can, if we can find a way of doing that. And uh, at the same time that we're trying to make those improvements and allow those aquifers to fill as a result of these new laws, we, we still have to maintain a reliable water resource for farms, for homes and, and businesses. And one thing that the more recent groundwater laws uh, say, and as far as their implementation is, we accomplish this locally. It's not, you're not going to be hammered over the head by the state. You have to accomplish it locally. Uh, local people know what's going on locally. So the challenge really in this situation is when the breakdown in collaboration turns into some water dispute, and water disputes are happening all the time. So so it really takes a knowledgeable, resourceful, collaborative, adaptive groundwater authority, which we're developing groundwater authorities now. We They need to be able to do all those things so that we can uh, not step into water disputes all the time, but instead resolve our problems in, in process. So the practical challenges, um, you know, on the other end would be, how do you pull all that data together? I mean, who's pumping and how much are they pumping? Where, What resource are, are we pumping from? And then 
where are the groundwater recharge areas? These are questions that uh, even science at times has difficulty answering, but uh, it's important that we look at the physical and then we look at the social. I mean, <clears throat> hardly anything is more important than air and water, right? Right, right, and this, uh, this is half that issue. Steve, uh, a lot of talk about banning fracking. Uh, mm. uh, what's, uh, what's your look at that? Well, I mean, California in particular is really committed to the position in responding to climate change. We, we know that uh, our, our own Governor Newsom has said uh, in regards to fracking, we need to ban fracking. This is what's being said. But really, it doesn't even stop there because the political will is becoming so strong now that people are talking about, and, and even politicians, about ending oil drilling in, in many other ways as well. And interestingly, the California Energy Commission says that Californians are increasingly buying less gasoline, which is a surprise to me, which is really expected to drop even further. So the pushback that one, re, one hears from the, uh, those who would lose in this situation, which would be the, the oil patch, would be uh, look at the economic damage that you would be causing by changing this. And then, of course, we're impacting tradition the traditions of the past in how we, uh, where we get our energy from and, and all that's provided through that process. So, so that's yet another challenge. Steve, what is the silver lining in all this? Oh, silver linings. I'm always looking for that, right? I would say it's uh, becoming more really apparent that we need to listen more I think that's what all this is telling us. And we need to speak after we have understood what we have heard. And that's very difficult to do when we're, when we're charged up with, uh, in dealing with the situation. Nobody really wants to be left behind. I mean, that's the bottom line. And, and case in point, these transitions uh, uh, are, are difficult for those who are going to lose their ability to effectively take care of their families and, and, and community and, and be productive at work. So, so a just transition is what I think the focus is going to be more and more, and that's shifting blue-collar and white-collar jobs really into the new normal, the new greener and resource-rich era. So uh, when we do that, and we're in process right now, people will be able to support the protection of the Delta, most certainly, and the redistribution of our water supplies and move towards that new transition, that new green energy industry. Steve, uh, thanks a lot. You bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. For months, the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta in western Alaska was shielded from the brunt of the pandemic due to its remoteness. Now the region has one of the highest COVID-19 infection rates in the country. As KYUK's Greg Kim reports, the region's health organization, the Yukon-Kuskokwim Health Corporation, is calling on village leaders to take action. In the month of October... YKHC announced over 600 new COVID-19 cases in the YK Delta. Here's YKHC Chief of Staff Dr. Ellen Hodges. I can't emphasize the urgency of this anymore. We are in danger of overwhelming our healthcare system. To prevent that from happening, YKHC recommended all schools in the region close and move to remote learning for two weeks. Most school districts have complied with that recommendation. CEO and President Dan Winkleman said after talking to school districts, YKHC turned to village leaders. We 
got on the phone and uh, notified 14 tribes and cities across the YK Delta that they should go on lockdown for the next two weeks at a minimum. That's on top of five villages that were already locked down before this week began. Vice President of Communications Tiffany Zolkowski said these villages do not all necessarily have a confirmed COVID-19 case there, but could be interconnected with other villages that do. Dr. Hodges explained the reasoning for the lockdowns. So the idea is, is if we engage in this behavior with a very strict shelter in place or hunker down or lockdown order, that we can interrupt the transmission of this highly contagious virus in our region before it gets out of hand like it already has in several of our villages. Bethel, the region's hub city, has also passed a resolution asking everyone in the city to hunker down and not attend any gatherings of any size outside of their household. Businesses are being asked to close down for two weeks, and the city is offering to provide economic relief to businesses that comply. Reporting for KYUK in Bethel, I'm Greg Kim. A new poll locator tool from Arizona State University's Indian Legal Clinic can help voters on tribal lands know where to cast their ballot. Emma Gibson with Arizona Public Media reports it's intended to reduce the chances their ballot gets thrown out. There are 20 reservations in Arizona. Tori Dolan with the ASU Clinic says half of those cover multiple counties, which can lead to confusion when it comes to casting ballots. And that can carry consequences. In Arizona, if you live in a precinct-based county and you vote out of precinct, your entire ballot is discarded. She says casting a ballot out of precinct happens twice as often for Indigenous voters in Arizona as it does for non-minority voters. The online map lets a voter drop a pin near their home. Then it tells voters what the precinct is and where to find their polling place. Until now, there wasn't a tool to help voters living in tribal lands find their polling place if they didn't have a street address, even though those are rare in reservations. The Arizona Secretary of State's poll locator requires a residential address. For National Native News, I'm Emma Gibson. Members of the Native community in Greater Kansas City kicked off Native American Heritage Month Sunday by calling on the Kansas City football team to change its name and end stereotypes of Native people. Jason Swartley was among demonstrators outside the stadium. Inside the stadium, they're doing some kind of ceremony saying that they're honoring Native Americans. And they even have found uh, presumably a few to go along with it. Well, everything that they're doing, everything about this team, everything about the use of our culture, um, not even so much our culture, but just a stereotype a dated offensive stereotype of our culture uh, is offensive. The group plans to hold another demonstration on Sunday. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. There's a mournful Peggy Lee song that asks the existential question, is that all there is? Some progressives are asking that when looking at whether to vote this year, Biden or Trump. Is that all there is? No, just scroll down the ballot in most voting districts and you'll find a choice of solid progressive contenders in congressional, state, and local races for grassroots offices. 
But wait, scroll a bit lower, and you're likely to discover a process of direct democracy, allowing ordinary people, you and me, to make our own policies and laws, rather than hoping that legislators and lobbyists will do right by us. These are ballot initiatives, policy ideas and procedural changes that are put directly to voters in a state, county, or city. Most are put on the ballot by groups that get enough voters to sign petitions demanding that a particular proposal be listed. It's not an easy process, but it has become a more common legislative tool as shown by the number and variety of propositions on Tuesday's ballots. Just counting statewide initiatives, voters in 32 states will be making their will known on 120 ideas. They include such solidly progressive actions as Arizona's proposal to raise taxes slightly on the super-rich to cover an overdue raise in pay for school teachers. They also include such blatantly regressive schemes as the attempt in California by Uber, Lyft, and other gig giants to strip health care from their low-wage workers. This is Jim Hightower saying, especially prominent in this year of pandemic disease, mass job losses, and ever-spreading inequality, are citizen initiatives to start restoring worker rights and income. These illustrate the importance of direct ballot lawmaking. When public officials and corporate hierarchies snub people's needs or carelessly harm them, the initiative is a democratic path for asserting the people's will. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to kvmr.org where you can listen on demand. Coming up next, we bring you Disability Wrap and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening. <laughs>